This episode of the MedSort Podcast is brought to you by Arena. Arena works with medical device manufacturers to help them bring their products to market quicker and more cost-effectively through their cloud product lifecycle management system. Arena's product lifecycle management system allows every participant throughout product development and commercialization to work together in a centralized system and effectively keep track of product designs, engineering changes, and associated product information to accelerate the design and delivery and ensure regulatory compliance of quality medical device products. You can find out more at Arena's. of the MedTalk podcast. On this episode, we're providing you an insight as to what's on offer at MedTech Innovation Expo on our conference stages. Call for papers for the 2023 running of the Expo are now open. So this episode covers a session offering advice and insight for startups from 2022. Your chair of this panel is Darren Clark, Deputy Chair of MediLink Midlands. So th- this session um, is really focused on um, uh, startups and using this this panel to give some advice and um, guidance to startup companies. So um, I guess, Martin, you covered a little bit of this in your previous presentation, but um, I think one or two people have wandered in since then. So um, I would just like to do, so from a panel's point of view, um, a bit of a audience participation, a bit of a survey. So first off, um, to ask the question that Martin asked, how many companies in the room are, uh, how many people in the room are from companies with um, products or te- technologies uh, that um, they're developing? So how many are medtech um, companies? Um, okay, I know it's a bit difficult to see, but there's a reasonable number there. My second question to that is how, how many um, of those companies would consider themselves as startups, um, recognising that I, I guess there could be different definitions of startups? So again, I, I think we've got a, a reasonable number there. So we are, uh, we, d- we do have a number of startups um, here in the room. Um, how many are individuals that work with startups or um, uh, are involved with um, startups but not actually part of them? Um, so, okay, again. Um, so um, I, I think that gives us an indication we've got a reasonable number of people that are um, involved with startups. Um, so just to start the panel, ra- rather than me introducing everybody, um, in part I'm being lazy, um, but equally I think it's easier if I, I just ask each of you to introduce yourselves. Um, and as part of that, just give an indication of um, uh, why you're here to offer advice or guidance to startups. What, what's your sort of, um, your, your backgrounds and your credentials, I guess, from that point of view. Um, so Martin, if you, um, don't mind starting since you're nearest me and with the microphone. Is this, is this working? Okay, great. Um, so uh, I guess my, my credentials for being here, uh, I've been involved in the SME sector for the last 20 plus years. I've done the journey from um, startup through angel funding, IPO and, and trade sale. I've been on the boards of 10 early stage companies. Um, I've, I've two, uh, three exits as well from that. And my role as a, a national level is ex i for i funder, but I uh, represent the NIHR and its ability to help uh, young companies. Yeah, great, thank you. Karen? Thank you. So, um, 
I'm Karen Taylor. Um, I work for the Deloitte Centre for Health Solutions. Um, my credentials aren't as strong as anybody else on this panel, to be honest, because they're from a research perspective, so holding up a mirror to what we see happening in, in the system, both in the UK but um, wider in Europe. I presented earlier today on our current research, which is looking at the future of diagnostics. But um, we do get startups, and I get startups coming to me all the time, um, asking how they can get their product adopted by the NHS in particular, tends to be the question. Um, and um, I, a little bit like Martin, I don't know the answer always myself, but I do know who to navigate them to. Plus, Deloitte do often run um, some innovation competitions with presentations from startups, and the best ones get supported to help them develop. In the Midlands, we have a health tech catalyst, which also supports startups in the Midlands area. So really, it's just observation, and I was asked to stay on the panel, so I said yes. <laughs> oh, you've got your own. Hi there, yeah, my name's Kevin Keeley. I'm the group chief exec at Medlink UK. Uh, Medlink UK uh, basically brings together, at a regional level, um, the, the industry, academia, and the NHS. Uh, and we, you know, I've been handling, and my team have been handling startups for the last 30 years. Um, one, adding value in terms of connectivity, which is essential for any startup, but two, actually providing specialist hands-on support, whether that be uh, during the innovation pipeline, whether it be PR and comms in terms of getting the messaging right, or whether it be internationalization. And internationalization particularly is important. It's not something that's stuck on the end of the innovation pipeline. It should be something that's considered from, from, from day one. So 30 years basically behind holding SMEs. Thank you. I think I'll, I'll challenge that least amount of experience. So I'm a mathematician, so I was qualified to do absolutely nothing. Um, <laughs> But um, I wanted experience in medtech, so I did it backwards. I made 11 investments in 11 medtech startups, and then slowly but surely went through the painstaking emotional drama of developing a product, running out of money, finding more money. And these startups are all from overseas. So with the help of the likes of Costa and Kate here, we've been able to bring six of them into the UK with products. So I'm having a lot of fun with this, more than anybody else, um, even though I have the least amount of experience. But um, I'm looking forward to some of the questions. I might have an answer. Okay. Uh, Paul Rollinson. So my, my first startup was 21 years ago, uh, pretty much straight out of university in the engineering field. And my new startup, Tutum, is about five years old. So uh, it's, it's been, Interesting going from high complexity, low volume to now trying to sell to the NHS. Um, it's, very, it's a very interesting journey, which is why Kate is one of my consultants who's joined the team to try and navigate that journey. Great, thank you. Hi, I'm Kate Pym. Um, I've worked in uh, pharmaceuticals and medtech sales and market access now for 25 plus years and um, have had a consultancy business supporting um, particularly SMEs, uh, but SMEs, uh, universities and PLCs uh, with market entry for products and services for the health and care sector in the UK. 
Um, so over, over 70 different organisations over the last eight years. Great, thank you very much. Um, I, I think that demonstrates that we actually have a wide breadth of knowledge and experience here from a, a range of different perspectives and backgrounds. So, so you know, I wouldn't say from, from the point of view of anybody here um, it's that you don't have um, insight or knowledge, it's just coming from a, a, a different part of that, which I think is a very valuable part of having a panel like this. So, so hopefully um, we'll be able to um, uh, address some of the um, uh, questions and issues um, that we have from the audience. So um, I will open up to the audience and ask um, people if they've got any questions they want to put to the panel, whether that's to the panel in general or anybody in, in particular on the panel. Um, but I would just like to start with my, my first question, and I guess we go back the other way down the, the panel this time, would be um, uh, just to ask you what would be the one key piece of advice you would give to a, a startup? Find out who your customer is, because there's a difference between an end user and a purchaser uh, to actually establish where your product sits within the market and who the influences are in that purchasing process um, and also make sure that the thing works in the first place. <laughs> I think for me, it's make sure you've got something unique so it's not an iteration of what somebody else is doing because it would be a lot harder to access the market. So make sure it's unique and yes, it works. But also, if your customer wants it, a difference, don't be scared of that, because ultimately they're going to be buying it. All the technologists get so focused on the technology itself. And just to iterate what you've just heard, it's, it's why. Why does the NHS need it? Why does a patient need it? And I think if you can develop the why, the funding comes very, very easy. Yeah, I'm just, just building on that, really. I'd scribble down needs. Uh, any development needs to be absolutely based on need and, and the value proposition. It's not just, oh, this is cheaper, this is better, but to have a, a, a well-thought-out value proposition uh, is so important these days. So I would say you need to be able to demonstrate how it will fit into the clinical pathway, which is another way of saying what's just been said. But I'd also say that um, you, in order to convince the NHS in particular, you have to be able to demonstrate through evidence base the improvements that will be achieved in outcomes, whether it's improving the way that staff work or a patient outcome. So you need to have that evidence base. Great being the last one. Um, <laughs> really great. Thanks, guys. Um, uh, I would look at it from a slightly different perspective. Um, if you are the innovator, if it, this is your technology, uh, recognize that you're going to need to build a team around you and you may have to relinquish your role at some point and for a lot of people that is very very hard to do fund i think i said in my slides funders fund people um you need to build a very very strong team around you and be brave but recognize that uh, your role may diminish um going forward and don't be afraid of that So if I can just pick, because you, you mentioned in your presentation earlier, Martin, about the, the importance of having the right team and, and, and investors invest in team. Um, as a startup, so recognizing that that can be a, a, a hard thing for a, um, if, if you're the 
technology owner or the inventor of it that you create that team? How, how do you go about doing it? How do you go about attracting the right team or creating the right team? It, it, it's, um, in, my, in my experience, and I'm happy to share this with the panel, but um, it, it is very difficult because if you're a startup, you want, you want people around you that, that share your passion but bring in a, a great amount of experience. Um, but you don't have the money to pay them the way you want to. So you, you, you try and incentivize them with options, and that can often be quite, quite complicated, I think, early on. The other thing is, at some point, uh, it's like, so certainly as a chief exec, I had to say to uh, my two inventors, thanks very much, guys. Um, you're in a consultancy role now. Step back. Um, and I believe with a glass of wine in me, I did say to one of them, I'm going to make you a lot of money. And 10 years later, he said to me, you, you were right. Um, but it, 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 there, are some very, there are often some very difficult conversations to have um, at an early stage. And I would certainly say to any of the teams, don't shy away from them. And, and have those conversations at those early Just stages. have those. You just need to set the expectation. Um, some inventors want to be the CEO, chief technology officer, finance director, marketing director. You need, if you're going to be successful, you're going to have to bring in a team around you. Oh, I don't know whether, from your, your point of view, obviously, uh, having um, set up a number of startups, do, do you agree? Is there anything you would oh, do? Oh, definitely. Uh, so I'm an engineer, you know, developer. Actually getting access and getting the right people around it to get access is paramount. Otherwise, you've got a very cool system, but no customers. Well, it's, it's having the money to do it, which is also, I, I'm looking my first startup, you know, I still run that business. It's a multi-million pound business, so I can self-fund to a certain extent. Okay. Karen, did you have something? Yeah, I did want to say something because uh, as those that were here at my presentation this morning know it was based on a survey we've done of medtech companies and, and everything from micro below 10 employees through, through to large companies. But the difference between the small and the micro companies was that they identified as a barrier, and this, this is really from Martin, uh, in, in a way, um, ac getting access to the right skills and talent as being one of their top three barriers to progress. So others felt that they were equipped for the future of diagnostics, which is what I was talking about, but the small companies were the ones that identified access to those skills and talent as being a real challenge. Uh, uh, did you identify, or has it been identified, how, how do they um, overcome that? Um, barrier or challenge? Not got there yet. I'm oh, only okay. just, I've just analysed the survey responses, so I'm <laughs> going to ask Martin to tell me the answer. <laughs> if I could tell you the answer, I'd be dialing into this conference for my 90-foot yacht in the Caribbean. So, uh. <laughs> um, I would suggest, um, I was at another conference earlier this week as well, um, and met a lot of people that I've worked with over the years, um, over the decades of working across pharma and medtech. And um, what tends to happen is once people get into their 50s, they tend to get laid off. And so what you'd find is there is a vast pool of experience out there on LinkedIn, people who are saying, oh, looking for new opportunities or setting up as an independent. And you can actually draw on that expertise and experience. Yes, they might be more expensive per hour or per day, but you're not going to have to spend, you're not going to have to lay out 
an annual salary for those people. You don't have the liability for them. You can use an independent. You can use them for the amount that they know when you need it, as you need it, which is really quite cost effective. And it gives you a running start rather than having to work with people who might not have that knowledge and experience. Kevin? Yeah, I think, I think in terms of having the right people around you, I, I think when you're a new startup company, uh, you, you can have an informal group of people around you that can add value, champions that, that believe in you. When you start moving towards investment, uh, then, then clearly, uh, as Martin has suggested, uh, they're looking for a plan um, and, and they're looking for the right people to be brought on board. So they would expect to see within any investment pitch uh, milestones for development, including bringing the right people in. But, but certainly from the outset, small companies should seriously look at having the right people around them, even, albeit that that may be informal uh, in the early days. And, and it could well be, just picking up on my colleague's point, that there may be 50-year-olds around that not only want to sit on your board, but may also want to invest in you. They don't just want to invest, they want to have an active role. So again, to get the right people around you, uh, people that not only may wish to invest in you, but also have got the skill sets where they genuinely want to help and genuinely want to contribute. Uh, I think those skills are out there. I 100% agree, because all the investments I've made, I've served on those boards. And yes, I'm in my 50s. <laughs> um, and even if you don't have the team, identify who you need. Because as an investor, if you've got the clarity of where your needs are, then that's comfort for me, knowing that you've identified where the gaps are so maybe I can help fill them. By ignoring them or glossing over them or I'll do that job as well, just says that you're going to be overstretched. Having a startup is hard enough. Worrying about things that you don't know makes it increasingly more difficult. So identify the gaps and then let the investor either help you fill those gaps or at least identify where the gaps will come during those initial phase, phases or years. Okay, thank you. Um, right, so I will open it up to the audience now, bearing in mind I, I, I am struggling to, to see with the lights. But So just going to the, the, the companies, at the beginning we, um, a number of you indicated you are companies or you consider yourself startups. Um, do you agree with um, uh, what the panel have been saying so far? Um, is there anything um, that you would like to sort of question or, or challenge from what they've they've said? Um, and then if, if not, are there any other specific questions you would actually like to ask the panel? Uh, yeah, I have a question. Um, Particularly to to Martin for the I for I program and uh, Jimmy Moore. yeah it is and, and and you know I know the program a bit but um, how do you balance pitching that your market is the UK versus uh, US EU rest of the world um, particularly for I for I funding but but I'd like to hear from the other panelists as well um, so i for i exists to um, generate patient benefit for the NHS, and that has to be the primary uh, driver for uh, for funding. But um, I, we've always taken the view that if it can be successful in the uh, in the UK, it should be able to be successful elsewhere. Uh, my own personal experience was was building a company here, but by far the biggest growth of the of the particular technology was the US, um, and actually getting credibility. One of the great things about this this country is if you get 
clinical credibility here, you get clinical evidence here, that is usually extremely useful in, some, in, in exporting the technology um, elsewhere. So whilst the NIHR seeks to give patient benefit to the NHS, it very strongly recognises we're also trying to build um, an ecosystem of very, very strong companies here. So that, that's, I think that's what I was hoping to try and put across for the NIHR. We want to make this place uh, globally attractive as a, for, for companies to be based here so that we get access to their technologies. But we also want to see, I mean, building unicorns is, seems to have gone out of fashion nowadays, but uh, I'd love to see some of these companies become unicorns. Yeah, so I, I think if we've sort of uh, broadened that, because the, the question was specifically about NIHR funding, but I think it was more generally about um, uh, market, global market, UK versus um, global. So if, if we take it from that point of view, Kevin? Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, yeah. Um, the NHS is obviously a great institution for, for developing and fast-tracking the development of products. But I've seen, not wishing to be negative, I've seen so many companies, startup companies, fail because they see the NHS as the gold standard and we must get into the NHS first. And unless we get into the NHS, we won't be able to succeed. Absolute nonsense. We, we all know that the NHS is a very difficult animal in terms of market access. Uh, even in terms of regulations now with the new MDR, the, the clinical evidence requirements is, is extreme. And I, I never thought I'd say this five years ago, but if you're a startup company, um, what should be your first step in terms of registration? Should it be the FDA? Because if it's a startup company now, you're going for MDR, you might have to wait 18 months before you get someone, a notified body that will actually audit you. So, so, you know, absolutely look at opportunities across the world. Don't just focus on the UK. And regulation is also important going forward. Don't fall into the trap of developing a product and at the end of it realize you've got to wait 18 months because that's the current situation in terms of the notified body availability and capacity. So you'll absolutely look outside the UK. It doesn't have to be a follow-up. It should be from, from day one. And, and that's where I started saying, really, that international doesn't come at the end of the cycle. It should come at the beginning. If you're, if you're developing a, a topical antibiotic, then don't try to market it into Germany. But the customer base would be there in the States. So understand who your customers are. And that needn't be the UK patients. Okay, just, just following on from that, so as I mentioned earlier, so we've made a series of investments in medical technologies from overseas. Why are they coming here? They're coming here for the research. They're not necessarily coming here for the NHS. We all love our NHS, and if these technologies can benefit patient outcomes, reduce waiting times, then fantastic. But what they are coming here for is one capital, the second research, and because they know they'll get that care and quality of research, which they will then take back to other European markets. Because at the moment, CE marking versus UK, UK CA is similar in timescales. But a lot of these companies are really looking for that added, the value added research that the likes of the NAHR can produce because that little stamp of UK research carries them across the rest of the planet. And that's essentially what we're trying to help with. Um, from, from my perspective, um, I've worked with a number of companies that have come to me and some of the first um, work that I frequently do is research um, 
and interview people that would be their potential customers. And during that process, you um, get to understand what the drivers are for those people and what their priorities are. Now, sometimes the drivers and priorities for the NHS won't actually match with that product or service. It doesn't mean that the product or service is, is there's anything wrong with it, but with a nationally funded service, their priorities are different to an insurance-based and highly litigious health service in other countries. So sometimes you have to actually look at that to establish which country you need to go into first. Just because there isn't a fit for the NHS or the NHS wouldn't want to pay for it because of the type of services they're offering and their drivers doesn't mean that you can't then start in another country and come back to the NHS once you've established and got that health economics behind it in another country. Sometimes you will find there is a product or service that the health economic argument just does not work for our type of health economy. So, so it comes back to that, know your market and know the, the needs and understand that very clearly and then identify where you should be yeah. um, going. I think, Martin, you, you wanted to um, say something to some of the comments, I think. I completely agree on the internationalisation of, of, of technology and I think your point on the quality of UK research is, is absolutely well made. Um, everyone then says, OK, well, let's, the US is the biggest market, let's go into the US. Be a little cautious. It is, having built um, both global uh, partnerships with American companies and had a direct operation in the States myself, it is a complex uh, beast. It is very litigious. It is very insular, very inward-looking. Um, I was a president and CEO, and some members of my sales team in, in the US meetings would come up to me and say, that's really great. And I said, you know, have you have you travelled? Oh yeah, we've been to Hawaii and Puerto Rico. Um, and if you asked them to point out where our base was on a map, they wouldn't have a clue. So it, it comes back to the point of get the right team. If you're going to work in, in a summer like America, you need people who understand the way that system works. And it is very, very different. The reimbursement system in the US is labyrinthine in its complexity, certainly for surgical products. So you, you, yeah. Be, be careful, is all I would guide. Karen, have you, so from the research you, you did, that, that the, the global market and the global opportunities in comparison to where um, companies are. So at. I suppose the most relevant point that I've picked up from the research that I mentioned this morning is in talking to um, a number of the notified bodies and regulators, what they're saying is they, they are concerned that the um, IVD regulations in particular will st initially stifle innovation in the UK and Europe, and that most of the companies that they're talking to are looking to launch first, either in the US or launch as a direct-to-consumer to try and avoid having to get the medical grade regulation. So that, that's just a fact, and I don't, you know, that's just what we're, I'm told is, being, is happening. Yeah. Um. It was one of the, the, the sort of follow-up questions I was going to ask around this. So with, with the changes that are going on in the, the UK and around the UK CA mark, um, do you see that? Is it opportunity or is it an issue or a, a threat from... Um so I, I've always presented these, both in this research and in previous research, They're, they are currently seen as barriers, but they could be real enablers. And so depending on how our regulators um, and other 
national organisations respond to the issues could make it a real enabler for the UK because there is an opportunity to do something different. It's just whether or not um, the spirit is willing at the right levels. Yeah. And, uh, has anybody picked up any indications on that, whether that spirit and willingness is there? What, in terms of the... To, 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 to make the, the changes in the UKCA mark and the, the, the repositioning of the UK a real opportunity? I, I mean, I'm, I'm non-plus. I, I just don't understand why we've gone the UKCA mark route. I, I think in re it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Um, I think most of our companies uh, deal with Europe anyway, so they need MDR. Uh, MDR is based on a, a much stricter, tighter clinical evaluation base. Um, the UKCA, I believe, is going to be based on the old MDD, um, so it, it's not going to be as as um, as as difficult. It's, it's going to be easier to get than the European. But why make companies jump through hoops? Uh, if someone's got a CE mark, why can't that CE mark be used in the UK? So I know I, I, I share this view with lots of trade associations. Our companies don't get it. Um, in terms of the delay in introduction. Uh, the MHA's, MHRA have gone quiet. Um, clearly, with the 1st of July looming now, um, next year, uh, something's got to break. And I, I don't think they can introduce it from the 1st of July. It will have to be similar to the IVDR. It will have to be rolled out in some way because I don't think there's enough time for the companies now to get their act together in terms of packaging, labelling. Uh, you look at some of the companies like J&J, they bring 33,000 products into this country, um, 27,000 products from B. Braun, uh, and then there are, of course, the SMEs. Uh, so, yeah, I just personally don't understand the logic of UKCA. It, if it comes in, then it's, it's another hurdle. And we just hope as a trade association type body that there's a, uh, an alignment with the uh, technical documentation because we don't want uh, companies to j jump through hoops with different technical documentation, different notified bodies. It can only add cost and complication. So um, I'm not a great fan of you, no, well, uh, Yeah, I, 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 uh, hopefully I don't, don't want to get into too sort of uh, doom and gloom around this because we're obviously meant to be offering uh, help and advice. But I'd be interested, again, from an audience point of view, now, um, any thoughts or views on um, where we are currently from a, a regulatory point of view? Hi. Um, it's not a thought, it's actually a question follow on from the okay. regulatory stuff. Um, so I'm actually one of the lucky ones with I4I. Um, I've had an interaction with I4I for like um, during the pandemic and we, we managed to raise a bit of funding and we just recently started our development. I completely agree about the team, about the whole why and story. Now, recently, I realized the regulatory knowledge that I have um, is not even close to what I should have. So about the UKC, about the CE mark. Now we're creating some research data in the UK. How is that going to work out in terms of the US? When is the timeline that we need to reach out to the US? And do we need to do everything in parallel? So is there any sort of like a thought or any sorry, guideline or pathway that you would recommend from the panel that there are kind of a TRL stages that you said it took quite a long time to put together a pathway. Is there something like that in place at the moment or not? 
Uh, so if you're a mathematician and you're not qualified, I've got a degree in geography. So how the hell <laughs> I ever got into this business, I have absolutely no idea. And I'm not an expert on, on regulatory affairs. So what you need to do is to talk to someone who is. Are you a PMA or a 510K or what would you be in the US? for 510k. Okay. Um, back in the old days, and this was a, a while ago, you could find um, guys in the US who would go and, and sit down with FDA and, and just have a, an open conversation with them. Um, and I, I, I don't know whether that's still an option, but that, that will give you some guidance. One thing you have to remember with, with, with FDA is, um, and they do it very rarely, but they will inspect internationally. Um, and my company was inspected by, by a guy uh, and it took something like 1,700 man hours to get ready for that inspection and this was a 510k and they can only in those days could inspect on one 510k. So you have to remember that um, if you think you've got the tiger by the tail, there are teeth in the other end with this. That you need to balance those considerations. If you're going to produce it here and ship it to the States, they may come and look at your facility. I think just the point of, of seeking uh, expert advice, Medilinks are based regionally, we've got connectivity with regulatory consultants, we certainly know regulatory consultants that regularly support SMEs with FDA, uh, so it's just seek advice really, uh, either yourself or through intermediaries such as Medilink or whoever. And now for a brief message from our sponsor. PTC by itself, I mean, uh, is a Boston-based company. Uh, we are uh, leading uh, when it comes to a digital threat, uh, digitization, let's say. So uh, probably a lot of people know PTC from ProEngineer in the early days and now, now called Creo. And then PTC has a very broad portfolio now uh, across the, the value chain, thinking from IoT solutions like Thingworks, AR solutions like Buforia, uh, PLM solutions like Windchill and, and now Arena. Uh, and also CAD solutions, uh, as I just mentioned, like Creo, but also a, a pure SaaS-based CAD solution like like Onshape. So very broad portfolio serving multiple markets, uh, including life science. That was a brief message from our sponsor, Arena, a PTC company. Now back to today's episode. Yeah, I, that's why I saw there was another question at the back. I had a gentleman there just talking about niching in the market and you were saying how to, you should niche and not try to generalize your product too much with, with ones that are already out there. Can I ask you how narrow do you make that niche and what was your process in actually going about picking your niche for your market? What sort of methods and thoughts did you have to get to that point? Because I'm assuming you did some research before you. Yes and no. <laughs> uh, we were quite lucky. We were approached by a medical uh, director a local hospital who, who had a problem. So I suppose they set the niche and we executed it. So we were quite lucky. We we're quite lucky. I don't know if that kind of answers the question. I think to try and come up with an idea of, okay, I can sell this to the NHS. I mean, everything talking about the regulations, I'm, I'm going through that now five years after the product's been launched and contracted with the hospital. So it's uh, definitely get the regulation side out first. And I'm now scared about going to America as well. So. <laughs> Does that fit in what you were saying about the needs and stuff then, when you were saying about a gentleman saying earlier that try and match yourself with the needs of like NHS 
or, or, or some organisation? Is that how you went about pitching your, your niche then? You basically found a, a, a gap in the market effectively and then built around that, the product around it. Yeah, we, we had a medical director go in. I'm worried about patient safety, single occupancy rooms, um, the soundproof, alarms go off, we can't hear it. So we, over five years, took that, very quickly got prototype, uh, we got it in, and it's developed over five years and now leading to on products. Um, but how did you get to that point where you actually identified that there was a need? Because, you know, you weren't just sitting in your office. How did it happen? And we were invited to a meeting. We were an engineering company and we deal with complex systems. As just so happens through uh, the university I went to, they were linked into Sheffield Children's and the medical director was very forward thinking. They had funding, they paid for the initial development, but taking from what they've got to what it is now has been through many, many different hospitals. So that idea of changing when it needs to be changed for a customer need, and you actually find actually these other people that need that. I think if you kind of insulate yourself and go, well, this is what I've got, I'm not gonna take on any feedback or I'm not gonna modify it, you, you can't, you're going to stop with one customer. I think just to play on the word niche, um, certainly for digital products and I guess other products as well, the clever thing isn't the, the technology, the clever thing is the patient pathway and understanding the patient pathway. And, and that's why it's so important that in, in many instances you need to focus on one patient pathway, pathway start generating revenue based on that skill and, and pushing the product through before then you start looking at other patient pathways, but whether that's what you mean by niche, uh, but certainly I, I often recommend to companies uh, that they focus on one patient pathway and get it right and get the revenue generated uh, in that pathway in the first instance. And I would totally agree um, with establishing which pathway you're wanting to enter, but make sure that you look across more than one organization if you can. Um, because every NHS organisation is different. They pride themselves in being different. They pride themselves in having their own pathways and their own modifications and their own way of doing things. So particularly if you're looking at a new product for, for something such as surgery, every surgeon will have a slightly different technique. So don't assume because one surgeon has got a particular challenge and it can be addressed in this manner and you've found the perfect solution that that is going to work for all the other surgeons that do that same surgery, because it won't. Um, so it's about establishing not only that there is a niche, but that there is a, a wider need in that pathway across multiple organisations, not just the one. Um, and Christian, um, as an investor in companies, um, as well as using it undoubtedly your, your mathematical al algorithm to identify which companies to invest in, what have you looked for from the point of view of um, the focus of the company and the, the sort of niche area that they're in? So when I see a business plan for a, an early stage business, um, that little acronym USA just scares the living daylights out of me. It's not because of the regulation at this stage, it's because of the absolute huge marketing cost of getting through all the HMOs, all the insurance companies, all the reimbursement models. It will just destroy any profitability you would have within an EU or a UK marketplace. So that's the first thing that I look for in a business. The second thing is then um, 
I'll do this little plug. So I teach when I'm bored. And I teach something called demand-based business modeling. And you've heard this several times up and down the panel. You know, you may have the best idea, but if there's no need for the idea, it's just a great idea in a box. So always, 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 and reiterating what Kate said, I've gone to a number of hospitals in both England and Wales. And where one door shut, another hospital might say, well, actually, no, we have identified that as a separate requirement. So I will always focus on the need first. And then secondly, your approach to that need. So does it work? Does it fit the requirement? And then the rest of it's easy. Great, thank you. <laughs> Hello. Is that a case of um, getting in front of the, the, the hospitals, getting in front of people and, and doing like UX design, getting in front and listen to the processes that they go through to try and analyze that and get it better so that you can improve on that service effectively. And as you were saying, going out to different hospitals, meeting lots of different people and just building on that understanding, getting good personas, understanding the processes that they take. 100%. I mean, Tatum were very lucky because of the relation to Tim, sorry, were very lucky. Um, <laughs> You know, there was a requirement that they were able to fulfill with the great engineering prowess within the firm. Everywhere else, it's not as easy. And then, even if it is easy, you've got to then make sure that you're future-proofing yourself. So yes, I would. I would talk to consultants like Kate. I would go out there and interview the clinicians where you believe that they would have the most value. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. Don't think that clinicians won't give you the time. There are quite a few of them that do have that time to invest in technology, in research, because they want to improve their own working life, working cycles and routines. Does that answer your question? You don't want to get in the way of the hospitals. And is it something, would you say, it'd be courteous to arrange appointments and things like that? Is that, as you say, getting into the building and speaking to people? but you don't want to be in the way of their services and upset them. I suppose there'd be some sort of process, probably make an appointment or request to speak to them, just not do it on the fly, I don't mean. Yeah, so um, as far as getting in front of clinicians and speaking to them, um, it's not that straightforward and walking into a hospital and asking to speak to somebody will not get you anybody, particularly right now. Um, in the past, possibly, um, in the old days of pharma, yes, but since the pandemic, there's been a virtual lockdown on access to hospitals and access to clinicians. Um, so when I'm looking into researching the viability of a new technology, for example, um, I would actually reach out um, through contacts and social media. Um, you'll find that the clinicians that are interested in engaging are more likely to be on platforms such as LinkedIn, messaging them. It is a bit thankless. You will have to send out a lot of messages. Um, some of them, the majority of them that do engage and want to talk to you and are happy to answer questions, um, the majority of them won't charge, but you will find some that do or ask for a charitable donation. Um, in my experience, although I never offer the money up front, in my experience, it's worth paying if you've got somebody who's got real experience behind them just to have half an hour of their time on a Zoom meeting or whatever. Um, as soon as you start talking about face-to-face -face meetings, it increase, increases your cost because you are the most valuable asset in your business. Your time is incredibly valuable. 
So the cost of travel to get there, to find them, to find that they're in with a patient, you've got to wait for an extra hour or two hours, and then eventually they'll spare you half an hour instead of an hour. It's much easier to arrange a Zoom or a Teams. Yeah, and I think from a, a Medlink perspective, I mentioned that we're regionally based and we have good relationships with most of the trusts. Uh, and on behalf of our members, if, if we had someone that wanted to engage with the clinician, uh, we would approach the people that we know that could be the innovation directors or the R&D directors and say, look, this is this chap who's trying to develop something new. Would it be possible for you to introduce him to the appropriate clinician? So that's, that's another routine um, because there are a lot of um, public sector people, whether they call innovation directors or R&D directors, that do want to engage uh, and see it as their job to engage, which is another route through. It's also the job of the AHSN to help you with those engagements. So um, the best way to engage with the AHSN network is to register yourself on Health Tech Connect, which in the past has been uh, really valuable. Um, the AHSNs are a little bit harder to engage with at the moment in my personal experience, but it is part of their job to help you to do that. Um, and so what, they, what you will do by putting your information onto that platform, is um, it then goes in front of the AHSN network. One of the members of the network will be allocated your um, innovation um, and they should be contacting you to see how they can help you engage with the NHS. I was gonna say, are there any other questions from the audience? I can see there's a hand up there. Hi, thanks. Um, I'm an engineering consultant. I work with a lot of startups uh, and obviously I work with engineering teams um, in a pretty focused way. Um, I'm aware that between the four people coming out of university with a technical idea and starting to sell something and support it and so on, your company needs to switch from being almost 100% engineering and focused on technology to being maybe 10% engineering design capability and a whole load of other things to support the product and sell it and so on. Can you comment on the how you manage the transition from uh, a very ideas-focused small company into a service-oriented company that can actually support the market. Anyone who wants to? Uh, so, with with my first startup, it was engineering software, and two to three years in, one of us had to go down the sales business route. So I was lucky, my business partner stayed engineering. I went to sales. Um, so transitioning, yes, you do need to if you, if you want to grow. But then there's a lot of companies that actually don't want to grow and they'll, they'll license the technology. They'll find a distributor and go, you know what? You've got the, the market, the connections, um, you know, give me a percentage back when you sell it. So I think there's many different routes. And this idea of growing a multinational and being the new unicorn, it's, it's not, it's something to, I suppose, strive for, but to actually get there, it's, it'd be too much for me, too much of a headache, to be honest. I'd rather find the global distributor and, and sell the technology through them. I don't know if that answered the question. So that, that's definitely one answer, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, that's certainly a solution. Yeah. Um, so, 
So I, I think we're back to um, something I, I think we said earlier about this of being, have those conversations early, be clear on what you're looking to do and how you're going to get there or, or being mindful that you have to have those because I'm sure there are multiple different ways that you, you could go about doing that, but it's understanding and knowing which way. Um, I am conscious that I, I know one of my panel members that I've, I've kept here for a presentation beforehand has another um, session to go to at um, half past one, so I'm going to try and draw it to a close early. But is, is there one more question from the audience? Hi, um, I've got a question for Christian. Uh, how likely is it that you as a private investor would in, uh, invest at idea stage before uh, proof of concept <clears throat> um, has been achieved, assuming that there's an, an unmet clinical need and um, a great idea which has been validated by experts for that uh, need? Um, it's very likely. And I say that because the, the program I teach is in the PhD program at university. So these are ideas at that stage. They've either not had a prototype, not had a concept. Now, unfortunately, in a 40-student class, I'll kill 30 ideas on the spot. So you have to be ready for that. Um, and of the 10 that are left over, maybe one or two make it to the form of creating a business plan. And then the likes of the NIHR will kill it. So, no, I'm kidding, they will <laughs> I for I will, well, they won't. No, uh, because you have to be able to feed that knowledge at the very early, early stages. And, and I'm gonna jump on this one more time. Whatever idea you have is, is there a need for it, right? But look, um, if you like, if anybody likes, um, I'm teaching one of my classes online. So, you know, if you look up MedTech Makers Lab and send me an email, come and join. It's two hours. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you. Yep. Okay, I'll, I'll look to draw it to a close at that point. But I'll just ask um, the, the panel, the panel members, is there any last word, anything that uh, particularly you wanted to um, uh, say or get across that we we haven't? look to cover. Um, if not, um, hopefully everybody's found that a useful um, session. I've certainly found the, the conversation very interesting. Um, I'd like to thank all of the panel for uh, their time and their input and their insights, and likewise the, the audience for their um, uh, comments and input into it as well. So thank you all very much. <laughs>